So take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's the text on which this morning's teaching is based. You can also uh, feel free to grab one of the blue uh, Bibles that are in uh, some of the chair racks in front of you, and you can find 1 Thessalonians 2 on page uh, 1255 of that Bible. Now, we're studying 1 Thessalonians this fall. It's a letter uh, that is written by the, uh, by the Apostle Paul, probably one of his first letters that we have in the, the Bible, probably wrote it around 50 AD. Now, remember, if you've been here, remember with me that Thessalonica was the, uh, the capital uh, of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a pretty important city in its, uh, in its time along some of the major, it was a port city, and so it had trade traffic uh, on the water. It was also along some major tra- trade routes, uh, so it was strategic from a uh, land travel as well. And Paul had visited this city of Thessalonica as part of his second missionary journey, his second major trip to start churches. Uh, but as you may remember, he was chased out uh, of the city rather quickly under some pretty significant counter-protests. Uh, that came when he was, was there. So that's a quick context reminding us where we are in First Thessalonians. And the text this morning is, the text is really verses 10 to 16 of chapter 2, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with verse 9 to sort of give us a running start. It'll also provide a little bit of a bridge uh, to what we were looking at last week. So if you're able, let me invite you to stand as I read this out loud. Uh, and, it, uh, and you're able to follow along. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord. And invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, and you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, there's some things in this text that we might not be able to get to, but there is something very specifically that I want to meditate on, and that is this idea that this is the Word of God that we just read, and what difference does that make? Uh, Once, uh, a number of years ago, I was digging through some boxes in a closet at Faith Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, the church where uh, our family previously was and where I was serving, and as we were digging through some boxes, we found uh, a big old lectern Bible. Right? A lectern Bible is like what we have up here, and you might not notice, I try every week to turn that Bible to the text that we're studying, and it's here. In some churches, uh, the, you know, people will read directly from the, the, bi- the lectern Bible, and you call it that. This is not hard because it's a Bible placed, you see, on a, on a lectern. That's why they call it that. So some, sometimes people will read from it, 
And, some, and sometimes, and which is more kind of how we use it here, it's placed to signify the centrality of the place of the Word of God in everything that we do. And as we come to worship, we worship on the foundation of the, of the Bible. Anyway, on the front of this lectern Bible that we found, um, it, it was inscribed, First Independent Church of Wilmington, Delaware. The First Independent Church of Wilmington, Delaware, which was the name of that church from its founding in 1936 up until 1951 when the name was changed to Faith Bible Presbyterian Church. All right, so what that meant was this was the Bible that would have sat in the front of the church sanctuary from the very beginning of the church. It's a pretty cool find. But what actually makes it timely for us to think about that or for me to remember that this past week is that Paul's statement here in verse 13 is critical for us to understand when he makes the contrast between the word of men and the word of God. And that really is an extremely important distinction for us to make. The words Paul is writing here, the words that he's writing, the message that he brought to the Thessalonians here when he visited the city, what kind of word was it? That's a really important question to answer. Was it the word of men? Right? Or in his case, maybe the word of just a single man? Was it just his message that he was bringing? Or was it the word of God? It makes a very big difference. For the Thessalonians, certainly, it made a big difference. But it makes a very big difference for you, for you right now. Because if Paul's message is just the word of men, then you might listen you know, politely, you know, give your attention to what we're doing here. You might, even be, you might even be interested, maybe even keenly interested. But ultimately, you should be listening with a with appropriate suspicion to what, to, to what we read. And I don't mean that negatively, right? You would be right to be suspect because human beings, no matter how well-intentioned, human beings can get things wrong. So you should listen to the word of God then, if it were just the words of men, you should listen to it as, uh, with some suspicion. But if Paul's message is actually the word of God, then your listening is different. It would have to be different, right? Even, even if at this particular moment, right, you're not sure whether you believe in God, you'd still have to admit that if there was such a God and if that God was speaking to you, you would listen differently to this God than you would to anyone else who was talking to you. Right now, I'm not going to go through an empirical analysis of why you should trust Paul's message, why we can be confident that this is actually the Bible, the Word of God, right? There's good historical work that's been done on that. There's good textual analysis of the, of the Bible that's been done, right? And that can be examined to, to make that point. And that's a very good study. It's an important study. But we're going to take a more experiential kind of tack this morning because that's really what Paul does here. Now, not experiential in the sense that your experience becomes the ultimate judge of whether the message is, is true or not. But Paul does point out several things that this message does this, this, this message that he's bringing, that it does because it's true, right? And because of that, right, they testify, he says, that the message is, in fact, the Word of God. Because if it is the Word of God, then you would expect it to have an impact on people, to change them, to transform certain things. It would have to. Now, for clarity, what is the, what is the message that Paul was teaching that he's claiming to be the Word of God, right? He says that, we brought you this message. Well, it's the message and I'm going back to chapter 1 here, verses 8 to 10, the message that there is a true and living God, a living and true God that we were created to serve. Right? A living and true God who is offended by our decision to serve false gods instead. That there is a living and true God who in his mercy saved us 
by sending his son to live and to die and to rise again from the dead, who, it says, Paul wrote before, who delivers us from the wrath to come that we deserve. Right? That's the message. And then the message continues, the same living and true God, he exists, who transforms those who put their faith in his, in his rescue, transforms them into different people. That's the message. So my thesis then this morning is that this transformation, transformation that's brought about by this message is what testifies to the fact that the message is true. The transformation testifies to the truth of the, of the message. It doesn't make it true, but it testifies to the fact that it, it is. Because Paul is showing us here that the message transforms the way we live. That's number one, right? Transforms our living. It transforms the way we suffer. That's point number two. It transforms our suffering. And it transforms the way we serve. Point number three, transforms our serving. And in every case, if the message weren't true, then it wouldn't transform our, our living. It wouldn't transform our suffering, and it wouldn't transform our serving. It would have no basis to do that, right? So let's look at each of these things, right? The message that Paul was preaching is the word of God, and we see that testified to in the way that it transforms the way we live. Look at back at verse 13. These people in Thessalonica received the word of God, it says, as what it really is, the word of God, which is, you see, at work in you believers. Paul saw the word of God at work. It was working. It was changing them. Which is why in verse 12, Paul is able to say, in the same way that a father deals with his children, he's able to, to exhort, to encourage, and to charge them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And if it wasn't the word of God, then he wouldn't, be able, he, he wouldn't have any confidence that it would actually change them. But because he does have confidence in that, he's able to exhort, to encourage, to charge. Now, all three of these words, exhort, encourage, charge, they're all strong words. But the word translated as charge is probably the strongest. It's a word that practically insists on a particular course of action. Now, what would that course of action be? Well, well it would be ob- obedience to God's moral law. Now that's not explicitly stated here, but the urging to live a worthy life, when Paul says live a life worthy, right? That's a common theme in Paul's writings. Probably the most prominent other instance where he uses that phrase is his letter to the Ephesians, and he kind of fleshes it out a little bit there. Ephesians 4 chapter 1, he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And if you remember how the letter of the, uh, to the Ephesians works, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians basically examining in detail the good news of the grace of God and, and urging people to receive it, to believe the, the message of Jesus as the word of God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he hinges and he says, okay, if you believe that, then it's going to change how you live and let me tell you how. And the last three chapters of Ephesians is basically how should this word of God that you believe, how should it transform you? And he spends the last three chapters telling you that. Now, to be clear, if this message of our gracious rescue from the displeasure of a just God, if it's not true, if it's not true, if there is no God to whom we're accountable, right, if he doesn't exist and he doesn't speak, or if he does, and we're just, you know, irrevocably banished from his presence, then there really isn't much sense at all in trying to bring every area of our lives into conformity with his will. Right, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it, it really doesn't make much sense for us to try to live according to his moral law if he isn't really there and he doesn't really speak to us. Right, but if it is the word of God, if it is true, well, then that's very different. 
All right, some of you might be familiar with the story, uh, story of Rosaria Butterfield. She is a, a Christian author, married to a, a Christian pastor uh, now, but she was, in her previous life, a tenured English professor, secure in her career, happy with her lifestyle, and confident, very confident, supremely confident, that the Bible was very much not the Word of God. Right? She believed it was the Word of men. And not just men, but very confused men, very oppressive men, evil men until she was actually encouraged to read the Bible for herself. Now, she, was, she went into reading the Bible not looking to be changed, right? From what she knew of the Bible, she didn't like the change that the Bible would ask for. In fact, it was the exact opposite of what she would have wanted. But because she was trained as, a, you know, an English scholar, a scholar of literature, she decided, I should probably, I'll read this. And she started reading it. And, and, and she wanted to understand, as she went into it, why this book had deluded, in her mind, so many people. And she just started reading big chunks at a time from beginning to end multiple times in multiple translations. And one day she was at her house with a large group of friends and she went into her kitchen to get something and her friend followed her into the, the kitchen and put her and, 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 and her friend put her hand on hers and said, Rosaria, something is, I don't know what it is, something's changing you. This Bible reading is changing you and you need to, you need to tell me what's going on because I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we're losing you here. And Rosaria said, she, she, she sat down, she almost had to sit down because her head was spinning, she almost kind of felt nauseous, and she said to her friend, she said, yeah, she said, I am, I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading it a lot, and, and what if it's true? <laughs> she said, we're in really big trouble if it's true. What did her friend see in her? Her friend saw the very beginning of what would be a complete transformation in her life. That's what the Word of God does, but only if it's true. All right, that's the first point. The Word of God, if it's true, transforms the way we live. Now, secondly, it transforms the way we suffer. All right, this is the, uh, the second point might not seem to logically follow from the first, but it actually, it actually does. Paul's message transforms our suffering specifically with the kind of suffering that the Thessalonians were enduring, right? Because their belief that Paul's message was the Word of God and not the Word of men, what that meant was that others began to think differently about them and to treat them poorly because of that. Look again at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Right? You see what happened? See what happened when these people believed that the word of God was truly the word of God? When the Thessalonians Christians, when they believed in Paul's message, right, and that message began to change them, well, then that meant they joined the club. Right? They joined the suffering church club. Just like the first churches that had been formed in Jerusalem and in the surrounding suburbs of Jerusalem, the same thing started to happen to Th in Thessalonica. What was happening? Well, most likely, the, you know, the suffering that they were experiencing was the standard stuff of the time, you know, social rejection, verbal abuse, false accusations, probably, possibly to the point of physical harm and death. Nothing big, just that. That's what they were dealing with. And that's what would typically happen in many of these Roman cities of the ancient world, particularly in high commerce cities like Thessalonica, a person's ability to participate in the, just the life of the town, and certainly in the economic and social life of the, of the town, it, it depended on their participation in the religious rites of the, of the Roman Empire. You had to bow down to, the, to their gods in order to be a part of the community. And so if one then became convinced that the word of God was true, and then these Roman gods were, were false, and that religious rites and practices 
for this false religion was by definition wrong, if they came to believe that, there would be a cost to that. Right? You'd lose your job. Your reputation would be ruined. People would get mad at you. They might try to hurt you. They might even succeed in hurting you. But think about this. If Paul's message weren't true, if it weren't the word of God, why would you endure something like that? Because you enjoy pain? Right? Because you like conflict? Maybe. I mean, maybe some people do. They like the martyr complex, but that's dumb. Suffering for a lie is not brave. At best, it's tragic. At worst, it's stupid, suffering for a lie. But if Paul's message is really the word of God, if it is really true, then that would transform the way that you suffer for that, right? For two reasons. First, because it would give you a confidence and a conviction that you're suffering for something that isn't a lie. It's an often cited scene from the life of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer in the early 1500s. But in 1521, Martin Luther was brought to trial because of his writings about the message that Paul had been, been teaching, about the message of the rescue from God's wrath through faith alone in Jesus. Luther had been, he had been starting to, to understand this better. He began to teach over it. Uh, but he was brought to trial by the Roman Catholic Church because they had a problem with this teaching and the way that he was, was doing it. And presiding over the trial was Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor who likely had the power, who did have the power, to put Luther to, to death. Probably be, he'd probably be burned at the stake for his heresy. But they gave Luther time to think about it, to reconsider whether he would like to, you know, recant his views. Take it back. You got an opportunity, take it back. Right? Think about what you're saying here. Revise it and put it in line with the, you know, the prevailing teaching of the church at the time. In essence, Luther needed to decide whether or not what he was teaching was just the message of men or it was the message of God. And, of course, the often quoted response from Luther that he ultimately landed on was, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the counsels of popes or councils alone, since it is known that they often err and contradict one another. If I'm not convinced by scripture and by reason, then I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. You see what he said? He said, look, if what I'm saying is the word of men, if it was just the word of men, if I were convinced of that, I'd change it. I'd revise it. It wouldn't, worth, it wouldn't be worth me going to the stake for that. Because popes, councils, even me, if that were true, those things can err. They can make mistakes. But if the message is the word of God, then I'm willing to endure the consequences because it's actually true. So it transforms your suffering because you actually have a confidence that you suffer for a truth and not a lie. But even more than that, Paul's message transforms suffering because it gives you real hope in the midst of suffering. Right? Luther, as it turns out, didn't end up being executed. Rem but, but remember, Jesus, on the other hand, right, he was also mocked and ridiculed, shut out of the inner circles of society, beaten and ultimately executed. Right? Jesus stood before a trial. He was asked to reclaim, uh, to recant of the claims that he was making to be the living word of God. He was given an opportunity to escape execution, but he too refused. Now, in his case, like Paul tells us in verse 15, he was killed. Now, just stop right there, right? Even if you don't know much else, you've got hope in the midst of suffering right there. Because for whatever you might not understand about why God is asking you to go through whatever suffering you may be experiencing for following the word of God, whatever you might not know about why God is asking you to do that, you can't look at the death of his own son and conclude that God doesn't understand what that feels like 
or conclude that he doesn't care. But, of course, it doesn't stop right there because Jesus didn't just die for that truth. He rose. Chapter 1, verse 10, right? You go back to 1 Thessalonians. When you believe the message, then you have hope that this is not the end of all things. Even death is defeated. So you have hope in the midst of your suffering because at the very, wor- at the very worst, you lose your life and you gain eternity. So believing that the message of Jesus taught by Paul, believing that it is the word of God and not the word of men, it transforms the way that we live, our conduct, it transforms the way that we suffer, and finally, it transforms the way we serve. Now, this is where we go back to our running start in verse 9, because verse 9 and verse 10 are connected. Listen again to the point that Paul's making. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, you know how, like a father with his children. That's how he's talking. Now, now what's Paul doing here? Is he patting himself on the back about how great an apostle he's been? No, he's making the point that his motives in bringing this message, his motives are pure. Right? When they preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, they weren't doing it to make a buck, right? And they weren't doing it in a way that exempted them from living under the same requirements that he was putting on them, the same requirements for holy and righteous living. They were doing it out of love, out of like the love of a father who cares for his, for his children. And they could only do it, at least they could only do it consistently, if the gospel of God that they were preaching was actually true. It was actually the word of God. Now, I don't want to overstate the case here because you can probably think so think of lots of examples lots of people in your lives who give selflessly right who serve sacrificially in in lots of different areas and they may or may not believe that the message about jesus is the word of god and yet they still they still serve and i, I want to concede that that's that's true you can you can serve people and not believe that this is the word of god but i think i'd argue that you can't really serve people completely unless you preach to them the gospel of god as paul defines it here now, again, if the gospel isn't the word of God, if, if, if it's just something that men make up, well, then who cares, right? It's just one competing philosophy among many competing philosophies. It might work, it might not, but if it's true, if people really do need to be rescued from the wrath of God and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is God's way of rescue, then how can you really serve someone fully, even if you meet all of their material needs here in this life, right? How can you really serve them fully? How can you really love them if you will not share with them the message that will transform their lives, that will give them the resources to be able to endure the suffering of this life, and that will provide an external and eternal hope that can never be taken away, how can you really be serving them if that's not true? You, you want to know why I was rummaging through the, the closet at Faith Church all those years ago? Um, when I found the lectern Bible, Remember? Right? What, do you know what I was doing? Do you know why I was doing it? Why I was in the closet in the first place? Because a guy who used to be a part of the church years before had reached out to someone that he knew that still attended faith, and he had asked a question that some people might find a bit strange, but he wanted to know the night when he became a Christian. He could narrow it down to a night when he put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he was trying to find the date. It was just important for him to know. He knew roughly about how old he was at the time. He was about 10 or 11 years old, he said. Kids, listen, this is, he was 10 or 11 years old when he became a Christian, when he first really understood and put his faith in Jesus. He was about 10 or 11 years old, and he would have placed the time frame for him in the, in the early 1970s. That's when he was 10 or 11 years old. And he knew, he knew the name of the man 
who was preaching that night at the church, and it wasn't one of the pastors of the church. All right, so this is some pretty important data. You can actually begin to kind of narrow it down. So our office administrator at the time at the church, she took up the challenge. And, and we rummaged through the, the closets and we found a bunch of boxes and she found the box that had all the bulletins from that time period and she went through them one by one and she found it. April 8th, 1973, so 50 years ago, just this past April. April 8th, 1973, the Reverend George H. Slavin preached a message in the evening service at Faith Presbyterian Church titled, Return Unto Me. And a young man named Dave Hoover, realized at that moment that the gospel was true. That this wasn't just something that he had heard read lots of times before, that it wasn't just the word of men, but it was the word of God. It wasn't just the words of a man talking to him. It was the word of God. And that night, he put his faith and his trust in Jesus. Now, why did he care? Why did he need to know? Because over the almost five decades since that night, the truth of that message had been proven out, right? Because he knew that night the message of the Word of God did something to him. It began a process of transformation, and he wanted to be able to go back and put a pin in the moment when it started. Now, not all of us know the moment. I don't know the date when I put my faith in Jesus exactly. It, 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 some, for some of us, it is, it's a process, but for each and every person who is a Christian, that's exactly what happens. There is a point in which the Holy Spirit of God transforms our hearts and convinces us so that we know that this is the Word of God. And that begins to slowly, over years, and in his case decades, transform us into a new creation. And he did it. He used it that night to transform the heart of a 10-year-old boy. Now, you might not have a, a pulpit and an audience to preach to in a public gathering. But if you're a Christian, who do you know who you can tell about Jesus? Or you might be, you might be the equivalent of that 10-year-old boy. You might be a 10-year-old boy. At least in the same position as wondering as he was. Wondering whether or not this is true. It is. The reliability of the manuscripts that we have, the historic truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the transformation of Paul himself, the growth of the early church, the willingness of so many throughout the centuries to suffer and die for their faith, they all testify to it. This is the word of God, and God is calling you to believe it and be transformed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word, that you have spoken to us exactly what you want us to know about who you are and about what we need in order to be in your presence perfectly and for all eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, as I prayed at the outset, do what I cannot do and apply that perfect word perfectly to the hearts of those who are here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.